This morning must be the uh, day for questions, Ron, because uh, I've got one too that I want to pose here as we get started together. My question for you is, uh, it's an easy question to ask, maybe not as easy to formulate a quick answer to. The question that I have for you is, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? Jesus told his disciples that they are to go into all the world and preach the gospel. So that presupposes that they know what it is they're supposed to preach. We are also followers of Jesus Christ. We are disciples of Christ. And so by extension, we are also to go into all the world and preach the gospel. But what is it? What is it that we're supposed to be preaching? What is the message that we have? The message that earlier I read in 1 Corinthians is considered foolishness to the wise of this world. What exactly is the gospel message? About 4,000 years ago, a man asked a profound question. A question that really kind of gets at the heart of the matter before us this morning. That ancient saint by the name of Job, he asked this question. He said, how can a man be righteous before God? How can a man be righteous before God? How is it that a sinner can stand in the presence of a holy God? How does that happen? There are many claiming to be Christians who have throughout the years postulated several different answers to that question. They essentially break down into three categories. The first says that we can be made righteous before God because that we are basically good people. That we are basically good people who, with the aid of divine grace are made righteous by doing morally good things. That ancient heresy, by the way, known as Pelagianism, is still among us today, and there are many attached to the church of Jesus Christ who that's how they would answer that question. Basically good at heart, aided by divine grace, doing morally good deeds. Another large segment of Christendom would say that we are made righteous before God in that we as sinners are infused by God's grace. God's grace is poured into us with the righteousness of Jesus Christ through faith as a child at our baptism. And then that Righteousness with the aid of divine grace is kept alive and grows over time by partaking of the sacraments and by doing good works. And that over time we grow in our righteousness, aided along the way by divine grace. And what we don't finish in this life is completed in the next in a place called purgatory. That's the Roman Catholic view of how a man is made right before God. 
The third answer to the question, the third position on how a man is made right before God is that God has unilaterally, a sovereign God has unilaterally declared in a legal declaration that we are righteous, that He has imputed or assigned to us the righteousness of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, through faith alone. And that we remain sinners. Not the same sinner, but still sinners nonetheless. Legally acquitted with the legal imputation or assignment of the righteousness of Christ on our behalf. That is biblical Christianity. Martin Luther, in the 16th century, said that the answer to the question of what is the gospel or how is a man made right before his creator, the answer to that question is the basis on which the church stands or falls. This is no small matter. It is indeed the very heart of what the gospel is all about. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. You should be excited this morning. Those of you that have been with us here since January, working our way through Paul's letter to the Romans, Romans 3, by the way, if you're using a pew Bible, you'll want to open up to page 1128, because the beginning this morning, we are making a major turn. Hallelujah, huh? Yeah, today is the major turning point in the book, beginning in chapter 3 with verse 21, okay? Okay. Except for the very introduction uh, early in the book, and that's a distant memory, I think, for all of us, way back in chapter 1, it has been nothing but bad news. Isn't that right? It has been incessant. It has been like waves pounding against the uh, shoreline. One message of bad news after another. Okay? And I'm tired of the bad news. How about you? You tired of it? I am a sinner. I am a wretched, wretched sinner. I am defiled at every aspect of my being. My mind is defiled. I think unholy thoughts. My will is defiled. I do unholy things and long for unholy things. My body is defiled. It is corrupt and decaying. The older I get, the more more it's decaying. I do not by nature long after God. I long after my own way. My mouth is defiled and all kinds of stuff is capable of spewing out of it. I'm a wretched, wretched sinner. And so are you. That has been the message that we have been constantly beating on here for months. It's been a steady stream of bad news, hasn't it? Can I hear an amen? Anybody? Yeah, it's been, it's been bad, bad, bad. But it's going to change this morning. If you're with us for the first time this morning, you came at a great time. A little more upbeat message, perhaps. But it's absolutely critical that we spent the time laying the foundation that the Apostle Paul laid with regard to the depravity of the human soul. Because if we don't, 
understand how bad off we are, we will not understand what it is God has done in Jesus Christ. You know, when you, um, you go to buy a diamond, gentlemen, you bring that special lady with you to see that diamond, and they set it out for you to look at, if it's a place worth its salt, they'll get a piece of black velvet, won't they? And they'll put that diamond on a piece of black velvet so that the brilliance and radiance of that precious stone will be all the more contrasted against its black background. That's what we have here. The wickedness of the human heart is the background and contrast to the brilliance of the Gospel. This morning, it's like going into a hospital room where the shades have been drawn for months. It's dark in there and it's dreary and it's depressing. But we're going to walk in and we're going to throw the curtains wide open this morning and the sunlight is going to pour into the room and flood the place with the glory of God. In just a few short verses, we are going to get to the heart of the Gospel. Now, I don't want to promise more than I could deliver, so we're not going to get there fully today, okay? But we are going to begin to get to the heart of the Gospel. It is a Gospel that is so marvelously deep and so rich, it will absorb us for eternity. Forever, we will look upon the glories of God in Christ and marvel. This is indeed good news. Since God is seen most clearly in the Gospel, and since the section of Scripture that is before us over these next few weeks contains the heart of that Gospel message, we are going to be going to a place now that is the richest and most densely packed motherload of God's grace that you can find perhaps anywhere in the Scripture. We're going right into the vein of it all. In chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. Let me back up to 19 and get a running start at it again. Paul says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. That every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now, apart from law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith 
in Jesus. Now that is a mouthful. This is a mother load. This is a rich vein of gospel truth. And so we're going to have to unpack it a little bit at a time. We're going to have to work at it. We're going to have to dig in. We're going to have to activate our minds and work through what Paul is saying here. So over these next few weeks, and I've given you a handout to begin to lay this out for you, I want to examine six aspects of true righteousness that comprise the heart of the gospel. The very heart of the gospel is to be found in these short verses so that we will know what God has done and how it saves us. Okay, What has He done and how does it save us? Paul's final conclusion in verse 20, bringing to a summation all that he has been saying up to this time with regard to the corruption of the human soul, reaches its conclusion here when he says that no one will be declared just or acquitted in God's sight based on their own self-effort. The end of verse 20. Nobody is going to make it on the basis of their own self-effort. And that presents a huge problem for humanity. That puts us in a fix, as they would say down south. Okay, we're in a fix. And the reason we're in a fix is because by human nature, we are legalists at heart. That is that we want to earn it our own way. If you doubt that, just be around a small child as they begin to walk and move and interact with their environment. And what do they say? Me do it. Me do it. It begins at a young age. That is the nature of the human heart. Me do it. I'll take care of it. I'll make myself right before God. And the Bible says that it can't be done. It can't be done. You can't do it. There is not enough goodness that you can do. You cannot keep the law in perfection. You're not going to make it. Anything and everything that you will do will be to no avail. It will not attain for you the standing of righteousness. you got a problem. And that's where verse 21 takes over. Notice how it begins here in verse 21 when it says, But now. Circle that in your Bible. Circle that. But now. That is a, that is a huge textual marker to tell you that something significant is going to happen here. Something big has really happened. Paul is using the strongest adversative that he can, that he can bring to bear here. What he is saying is that whereas law-keeping will not justify you, will not acquit you, will not make you right before God, and thus all humanity stands condemned, he says, but now something has changed. But now something has changed. That is that a, a decisive event has occurred. A decisive event Something by which God has now made known His righteousness. Something's happened in space and time. Something so qualitatively different. Something so unique that it stands irreversibly in complete contrast 
to what has gone on before. But now, Paul says, but now. This is a great little textual marker. If you'll turn to the right, if you'd like, to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13. Paul gives you the same textual marker there. There he speaks about the fact that the Gentiles were separated from God. Verse 12. Cut off from God. No hope in the world, he says, without God. In verse 13, though, he says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Same kind of marker. We won't turn there, but you could check it yourself. First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20. The same adversative used there. The same textual marker. The same huge exclamation point that says something has changed. Something has changed. But now, verse 21, Romans 3, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made manifested. What is it that God has provided? What is it that is this huge event that is called out with this marker, but now? The answer there in verse 21 is that the, the righteousness of God has been made manifest. That is, it has been made known. It has been showed. It has been revealed. God's righteousness. God's righteousness. See, the end of verse 20 it says that there is no righteousness that will come from you. You cannot earn it through the law. You're hopeless. You're helpless. You, you have no ability to make a right standing before God. But now, God's righteousness has been revealed. It has been made known. What is this righteousness of God? Verse 21 that he's talking about. The righteousness of God. That is, God's Righteousness. He's not pointing here in the text to the fact that God is righteous. That's not the point. What he is speaking about is that it is, the, it is God's righteousness or the righteousness from, from God. That is the righteousness that God accepts and the righteousness that God gives to those who believe. It is God's righteousness. It is the only righteousness that the judge of all the earth will accept. Something has happened that it has now been made available. God has intervened in human history, Paul is saying. He has intervened in human history and He has now brought this righteousness to bear on the human condition. This righteousness again, verse 21, notice it is apart from, it says, the law or law. It's a very, very strong word when it says apart from. What he means here is that this righteousness that comes from God is not in any way contributed to by law keeping. It's completely foreign to law keeping because law keeping won't help you out. Isn't that what verse 20 says? You will not be acquitted or justified by law keeping. So the righteousness that has now been made manifest is a righteousness that has nothing to do with law keeping. That's good news. That's good news. 
What that means is that we can have no participation in this righteousness. We don't contribute to it. We don't have anything to do with it. We don't enhance it. We don't prepare ourselves to receive it in any way. No preliminary work. None required, none possible. We don't clean ourselves up to get ready to receive the righteousness from God. No preliminary work. Beyond that, there's nothing we can do to enhance this righteousness. Nothing you can do to enhance it. That means that you cannot become more righteous, more justified by anything you might do. Your obedience doesn't set you in a better standing. Why? Because through law-keeping, no justification, no righteousness. It comes from God. You can't get ready to receive it. You can't do anything to enhance it or improve upon it. You cannot do anything to maintain it. You cannot maintain it. That is, you do not remain justified or in possession of this righteousness by your obedience to law keeping. This is huge. Talk about cutting the legs out from underneath the human condition. We like to do it ourselves. Isn't that right? Me do it. And God is saying, no, you not do it. God do it. You receive it. There's nothing you can add. Nothing to be added. It is a righteousness apart from verse 21. Law. It cannot be earned. It cannot be enhanced. It cannot be maintained. It comes from God to us from outside the system, if you like. It is a righteousness that comes from outside the box of the human condition. It is an alien righteousness, it is an imported righteousness. If you don't hear anything else this morning, pay attention to that. It is righteousness that comes to us from God. Paul goes on here, verse 21, talking about this righteousness from God. He says it has now been made known. And he makes an interesting statement here. He says it's been wit- being witnessed by the law and the prophets. There's an amazing um, thing that Paul's doing here because at the beginning of the verse, he's saying, but now, that is, there is a a decisive act that has occurred in space and time, but now the righteousness has been manifested. It's different than what it was. Yet at the same time, the end of the verse, notice he says that it is being witnessed by the law and the prophets. That is, that it is something that has been known and available all along. How can that be? How can it be new now and available all along? I'm glad you asked that question. 
When Paul says here, the law and the prophets, that's just a shorthand way to refer to the Old Testament. So he's talking about the Old Testament here. And he's saying, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, being witnessed by the Old Testament. That's a good way you could look at that, by the Old Testament. What he's saying is that the Old Testament revealed to those with eyes to see that righteousness never came by law keeping. That the law keeping in the Old Testament never made anyone right before God. It was always God's gift. Always came from the outside. That has not changed. The whole sacrificial system of the Old Testament bears witness to this truth. I mean, when a man took his sacrifice, his sin offering to the temple in those days, right? He would maybe carry that lamb over his shoulders, holding on to either you know, set of legs with either hand and take it there to the temple. And when he got there, he would lay his hand upon the animal. He would confess his sin and then the animal would be killed, right? And he would, he would uh, having confessed his sin and seen the animal slain, would see the reality that sin requires death. And he would go home forgiven. Isn't that true? Isn't that what the Bible says? But he never, ever thought that somehow the blood from that little lamb cleansed his soul he knew that he knew that what he was doing by that act was witnessing to his faith in the God who established that whole sacrificial system he was looking with eyes of faith forward to the final sacrifice that would for once take care of his problem his sin problem How do I know that? Because the Bible tells me that. If you'll turn to the right over to Hebrews chapter 10. If you're uh, using a pew Bible, page 1202, Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 1. The writer of the Hebrews says there in Hebrews 10 verse 1, It says, for the law, since it is only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. What the writer says is that the ritual of going to the temple to offer the sacrifice year after year only showed you that you were a sinner. It was a reminder that you were a sinner and that the death of this animal on your behalf didn't take care of your problem. And the reason you knew it didn't take care of your problem is because you had to go again next year. And you had to go the year after that. And you had to go over and over and over again. Your problem has never been resolved. You are never made right with God. Instead, as you watch the life 
flow out of that animal, you realize the wickedness of your own soul and the death that it calls for. Back to Romans 3, Paul says it's being witnessed by the law and the prophets, that is, by the Old Testament. Isaiah, the great prophet, wrote in Isaiah 53, verse 6, By faith he looked forward to the one who would someday bear his sin, and he said, All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was looking for the one to come. The one sacrifice. The one who will take it all. Abraham, the great father of the Jewish nation, long before the law was even given, 400 years before the Mosaic ritualistic law came, he was made right with God. Not by the basis of what he had done, right? But how? Through faith. Through faith. In the promise of God. Just let your eyes get on a page to chapter 4 of the book of Romans. Paul calls that forward as an example. He says, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Abraham received his righteousness not by law-keeping, but by a gift from God through faith. The prophet Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 4, which Paul quotes in Romans 1.17, right? The righteous shall live by what? By faith. By faith. It's always been this way. It has never, ever, ever been possible to be right before your Creator based on what you do. You can't do it. It has always been God's gift from the outside that comes to us through faith. And that really takes us to our second aspect here of true righteousness. The means by which we receive it is through faith. It comes from God to us through faith. Verse 22. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Stop right there. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. When it begins here with the conjunction day, which is translated even here, what Paul's doing is he's further defining this righteousness from God. All right? He's, he's giving it a little fuller, a little clearer definition here. That which now lies open for all the world to see, that which has now, apart from the law, been made manifest, that is, been made available for all to see, is what? It is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Through faith in Jesus Christ. The righteousness from God that comes to us is only available through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what he's telling us. 
Philippians chapter 3, verse 9. Paul's longings are there, he says, that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Where and when did this righteousness become manifested? When did it become known? When was it clearly apparent for all to see? What is the event that Paul's referring to back here in verse 21 when he says, but now something's happened? You know the answer to this question. It's at the cross. It is at the cross. Galatians 4.4 But in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, right? Born of a woman, born under the law. It is through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that God has revealed the basis to humanity on which they can be reconciled back to Him. Now, grammatically, it's, I guess, worth noting when it says that the righteousness of God has been manifested, the end of verse 21 there, there is a, it is a perfect tense verb. What it means is that it has, been, it has happened in its ongoing activity. That is, it stands revealed. It stands revealed. A one-time event that shines forth forevermore. It's fascinating, isn't it? God's plan is both new and old. Both unique and familiar. Old in the sense that it is, that it is embodied within the Old Testament. It was that for which the Old Testament... Believers looked forward to the coming of this one who would someday be the final sacrifice. And it is new in sense and unique in the sense that in space and time, at a point in history, God intervened into the world of men. And by this cataclysmic event, the death of burial and resurrection of his own son, he threw open the gates of glory for all who will come in. The cross of Jesus Christ is the seminal event in history. All turns on this. It's like the Statue of Liberty in New York Harbor. It stands and dominates the skyline. That's the cross of Jesus Christ. It is the symbol of Christianity. Is that not true? Look behind me. What do you see? And why do you see it? Because that cataclysmic event is what establishes the basis by which men are made right with God. It is the cross of Jesus Christ. How does this righteousness how do we receive it? In verse 22, through faith in Jesus Christ. Through faith in Jesus Christ. It becomes operative in our heart when we place faith in the saving work of an individual. See, we are not saved by faith. Okay? I already asked you that. So are you saved by faith? The answer is no. Okay? 
You are saved by the objective atoning work, and we'll get to it later, the propitiating work of the Son of God. You receive it through faith in Him. Faith has to have an object to be saving. There is a necessary object here. It is through faith in Jesus Christ, Paul says. General faith in God just won't cut it. I have faith in God. So do the demons. It is faith in Jesus Christ. That faith has to have an intellectual content. It has to mean something. Notice again what he says. It is through faith in Jesus Christ. He just doesn't say through faith in Christ. He says through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, Christ is not his last name, right? You know that. It's not Jesus' last name, Christ. It is Jesus, the Christ. When Paul brings the two names together here, what he is doing is he, in shorthand form, is drawing up all that is for this Son of God. He is Jesus of Nazareth. He is the man, Jesus. He is the descendant of the great King David. He is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise. All that went before is fulfilled in Him. And He is the Christ. That is, He is the Messiah of God. Very God. Go back to chapter 1. Verses 3 and 4. Paul draws this out so that we might know. He says that he was promised beforehand, verse 2, through the prophets and the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. Saving faith has to have an object. And any old object won't do. It must be placed in that one. Jesus Christ. Descendant of David. Messianic King. True righteousness comes only through faith in Him. Acts 4, verse 12, there is salvation in no one else, right? For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. 1 Timothy, chapter 2, verse 5, for there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. True righteousness comes from God through faith. In the Lord Jesus Christ. Not on the basis of anything you have done. Do you believe that? Do you? That's the gospel. Or at least the beginning parts of it. Is there anything you can do to improve your standing before God? Anything at all? Are you sure? Are you really sure? 
Maybe you've never received that gift. You can. It is available to you. If you will call out in faith on that one. Now, there is much more intellectual content that needs to go underneath this and we don't have time this morning to develop it, but we will. So what I would invite to you this morning is that if you are here among us and you do not know that should you die tonight, whether you'll be in glory with God or not, you're not sure of that. Or maybe you are sure that you won't. We would love to talk with you further. After the service over here by this lighted cross, there will be some folks available. They can open the Scriptures with you and, and kind of continue this message to show you how you can have life and have it abundantly. I'm so glad we're now in the daylight. huh? Ron, come and, uh, and sing and then we're going to celebrate communion together in a great celebration for what has been done.